Well, it's so good to be with you all. Um, we have more folks that have joined us uh, just in the last 20, 30 minutes. So glad that you're here. Um, if you're visiting, thank you so much. You're an encouragement to me, and I know you're an encouragement to the group here. And looking forward to the next couple of days, Lord willing, we'll have some uh, other visitors coming in the evening. Um, but there are a lot of gospel meetings in Lexington this week, so we'll see who shuffles around where. Uh, and I don't know how much of a draw I am against the, you know, Shane Scott or whatever else. I'm just Jeremy. Um, and John, man, uh, it was four years ago that I met John um, because I will never forget that kidney stone. Um, Lord willing, that is the one and only. I'm praying really hard that's the one and only. Um, I was at the uh, SALT Bible Camp, which is a, a week-long Bible camp for young men about the age of tw 12 to 19-ish. And I was teaching the book of 1 Samuel and got to be about Wednesday night and I was dying. I was just dying. And uh, our director rushed me to the ER and they gave me some pain medicine and came back and John had all kinds of great ideas <laughs> to try to help that stone. The boys kept checking. They'd come to the cabin. Have you passed it yet? Have you passed it yet? No. Will you show us? No. Um, and then before we left camp, I think it was John's idea. He went to the, the gift shop and to help me remember that like I would ever forget. Uh, he went to the gift shop and bought one of those small pouches full of polished rocks and said, this is a gift to help you remember this. And I said, thank you. And I think it's still in the armrest of my car. Um, so memorable. My, my week meeting John was very memorable. Uh, we were really excited when we got to Oldham Woods and started worshiping with them. And we were really disappointed when they moved. But I think uh, our loss is definitely your gain. I'm so grateful that they're here, here with you. And John's been sharing with me the work that you all have been putting into this gospel meeting. Um, from my understanding, it's the first one you've had in a couple of years. And it's uh, this year, I think I have held four gospel meetings that was the first meeting post-pandemic. And those are fun. I mean, they're fun because you just haven't done them in a while and folks are excited and um, remembering what they used to do and they're getting to do it again. So I hope this week is everything that you've been hoping it would be. And I hope the folks that you've been inviting are able to attend and it's an encouragement to them. Um, even though I've, I don't believe I've been here before, um, not too long ago, 20 plus years ago, I was down the road in Danville. I went through the Danville uh, preacher training program back in the late 90s. Um, so that was my introduction to Kentucky and now here we are. So. Thank you all so, so, so much uh, for everything that you've been doing, and I pray that the, the week is a blessing to you. Um, the picture up there is of a, of a baby in utero. That is, that is a baby inside of its mama, and that's an amazing process. We were talking about this with some of the ladies yesterday. They're like, oh, man, pregnancy. Oh. Um, it's hard. Pregnancy is hard. Labor is hard. Delivery is hard. But the process is amazing. I mean, you think about you think about a woman having the potential for life inside of her, and then at some point conception takes place, and where there wasn't life, there's now life, and that's amazing. And then that little tiny life grows and develops, and you've got this little person that's created in the image of God that doesn't even look like a person yet, but that person is a person. God sees that little soul as a soul. And that person continues to grow and develop, and then at some point, that mother gives birth. 
Like that's just an amazing process. And we have so many different tools and so much technology now to help us understand more about that process. I mean, now you have mothers that are like, you know, my baby at this point in my pregnancy is the size of a grape, and now it's the size of a kiwi, and now it's the size of a cantaloupe, and now it's the size of, and so like every month they're just talking about what that baby, what, how big that baby could potentially be. Um, and they're checking on the health of the baby and the heartbeat of the baby. And for some fathers, that's the first time that it really dawns on them, I'm having a baby, because they hear the heartbeat thumping. Right? And if you really, really want to, you can try to even figure out the gender before the baby even shows up, and they're more and more accurate about that. Um, that wasn't Anna's preferred way of finding out. I wanted to know because I'm impatient. She's like, no, we're not going to do that. Um, so it was still a surprise for us when our kids showed up. I think we found out with Sabina. I think I won a bet, and so she let me find out. That whole process is amazing. And what I want to do this morning is look at a birth from the perspective of the Hebrew writer over in Hebrews chapter 11. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrew writer talks about the arrival of Isaac. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, he tells you about Sarah and says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I think that that last sentence is my father's goal for the Behut family. I am the oldest of seven kids. I'm the oldest of seven. For the majority of my life, I was the oldest of six but a few years ago, my parents adopted again, and they adopted a young man who was about eight years old. So I have a 15-year-old brother. There's 27 years between us, right? So there's seven of us. But growing up, there were six. And in dad's head, he's, he's big into math. He does mechanical uh, drafting. So he's big into numbers and math and playing that game. And so as we got closer to adulthood, he's like, look, I've got six kids. And if each of you has six, and then each of them has six, he's like, we're going to swarm the world. He's like, that's horrible. <laughs> That's a horrible vision, you know, like we're locusts coming in someplace. But you think about what God's doing for Abraham and Sarah is he's trying to help them think about at some point in the future that you can't see, your descendants are going to be so many, it's going to be like you go to the beach. And every little grain of sand is a person. That's just hard to imagine. And then you have the one, the one time, and I believe it's in Genesis chapter 15, that he takes him out to see the stars at night. And he's like, look, can you count all those? And Abraham's like, no, that's how many kids you're going to have. That's hard to imagine. And it was especially hard to imagine for Abraham and Sarah because they were so old and hadn't had kids yet. And so we talked about this a little bit in our weekend workshop the last couple of days. But for those of you who weren't there for that. Let's do a little exercise. Go over to Genesis chapters 11 and 12. Genesis 11 and 12. And let's point something out. So when you look at Genesis chapter 11, Moses, who wrote Genesis, helps us to understand the family tree of Abraham and he includes several pieces of information, and I think each piece of information in the Bible is important for its own reason. 
But for the point that we're making, I think we see something really interesting. When you're in Genesis chapter 11 and you start in verse 10, it starts rattling off the family tree and the, the way that the family tree branched. So you've got this father who went to this son, to this son, to this son, and it's tracking the oldest sons that continued the family promise. And so he starts with Shem, one of Noah's sons. So this is post-flood. Verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 year, years old, he fathered, fathered Arphaxad two years after the flood. So he was 98 when he comes off the boat. And then when he's 100, he finally has the son that's going to continue the promises. That is old to have your, your first son. That's old. But then you come down to verse 12. And when Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. So when he has his son that's going to continue the promises, he's 35. And just notice, when you get to 14, when Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. Verse 16, when Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And verse 18, when Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And 20, when Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. 22, when Sarug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. Verse 24, when Nahor, Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So the average age for most of those men in Abraham's family was you get to your late 20s, early 30s, and you start having your, your children. My mom and dad got married straight out of high school. And they were 19 when I came along, 1920. That's pretty young. And I grew up, since that's the way my mom and dad did it, and that's what I knew, I just kind of grew up thinking, hey, by the time I'm 18, 19, 20, I'll be married and have a kid. And then I was 20 and single. No potential for having a kid. And then I was 21 and single and no potential for having a kid. And I thought like I was some old spinster man by comparison. And so you think about how Abram feels by comparison. He has all of these men in his family that have had a certain experience. And he probably grew up thinking that will be my experience. And then when you get to chapter 12 and he gets the call of God to leave Ur and to go toward Canaan, look at verse 4. Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old. He's 75. He's nearly double the age of most of his ancestors, hasn't had his firstborn son. But God had already made the promise back in verse 2 of chapter 12 that God was going to make him a great nation. You think about what God's promising there, and you can go through the different passages where God reiterates that promise. You know, you can go down to chapter 15, and we did this over the weekend. You go to chapter 15, where God comes and has a conversation with Abram. God initiates a conversation with Abram, and in verse 1, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Like, I've obeyed you, I've left my homeland. My dad is with me. Lot is with me. I don't have any kids yet. Still don't have any kids. And that's when God takes him out in verse 5. He brings him outside and says, look toward heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. 
And he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it, he counted it to him as righteousness. But then when you come down to chapter 16, you have the incident with Sarah and Hagar. Where they're getting impatient with God, they're wrestling with when God's going to fulfill this promise. You look at verse 3 and you realize it's been 10 years since he's left. So now he's 85 years old, still no son. And so Sarah says, hey, why don't you have a child with this handmaiden of mine? I will adopt this child, we'll raise him as ours, and God will just fulfill his promise that way. And God says, no, that's not the way this is going to go. It's going to be Sarah and Abraham. He keeps wrestling with that. The, the New Testament passages looking back, you know, the passage that we're starting with here, the way it describes Abraham's body at the time that they finally get pregnant with Isaac, his body was as good as dead. I mean, there comes an, an age in the bodies of men and women where they're not capable of having children anymore. I mean, when God finally talks to Sarah and to, to Abraham about that, they wrestle with it. They wrestle with it. Back in chapter 17, Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a woman who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He's like, this is impossible. Her body cannot do what you're saying is going to happen. That's just not possible. And then in chapter 18, verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She'd gone through menopause. There were no, nothing else was going to happen there. And verse 12, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out, her body is worn out. Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Like what God is promising is just incredible. It's the point of the lesson. Faith believes the incredible. God is trying to get them to see that he's going to do something that is just unprecedented. I mean, Ann and I got married and very normal. We're young, we're in our early 20s, and there's Keenan. And then Cooper and Whit, like, is just healthy bodies, young, there are kids. But then the older you get, and you get past a certain age, and it just doesn't happen. And God's saying that he's going to do something that physically should not be possible. He's asking them to believe the incredible. Their bodies were as good as dead. Paul said that in Romans 4, 18 through 19, repeating what the Hebrew writer said. And think about the response, though. Let's look at this, this passage here in Hebrews 11, just a little bit more, and then we'll make the next point. We'll change the slide. It says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. By faith. So he's saying she believed. She believed God. I think that's what the text is saying. But how did she initially respond? She was incredulous. When God first told her, and God first told Abraham, and he got more specific. I mean, the first time in Genesis 12, he said, nations are going to come from you. 
And then he goes on to say in chapter 15, look, as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in heaven, this is what I'm going to do for you. And then in chapter 17, look, it's going to be you and Sarah. And then in 18, it's going to be one year from now. So he gives them more and more information as time goes on. But he's taken so long to do it, it's just, it's a stretch of the imagination. He's pushing and pushing them. And we made this point this weekend, and I want to make it here. The way the Hebrew writer looks back is he says, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Sarah. But that doesn't mean that in the moment she didn't struggle. It doesn't mean that on that day her faith was low. It's okay for our faith to be low for a day. It's okay for our faith to be low for a couple of days. It's okay for our faith to waver. It's, our faith is going to doubt. But does that describe our faith over 25 years? Because as the Hebrew writer looked over a period of 25 years, he said, faith. It was faith. God doesn't evaluate our faith based on a single day. He looks at our faith over the course of our life. So he can look at someone and say, you're a faithful follower of mine as I look at the whole thing. So believers can initially be incredulous. And you think about some of the promises that God's made to us. And on first glance, it just seems really impossible, right? What about the forgiveness of sins? I've never seen a sin get forgiven. I've never seen sins be removed from an individual. I've never seen it with my eyes. I've baptized numerous people. I've never seen the water get dirty. Never seen it. But by faith, I believe it took place. That's just incredible to me that God can remove sins. But he says he does. What about the promise of Jesus' return? My eye didn't see him go. But he said he's coming back the same way that he went. By faith, Jesus ascended up into the clouds. Acts chapter 1. He's going to come back. Men don't float, in my experience, through the air. But that's what Jesus is going to do. This worldwide awareness that Jesus has returned with a shout and with trumpets and all that stuff, I've never experienced that kind of moment. But it's going to happen. What about in 1 Corinthians 15 and a bodily resurrection? There's a promise of a bodily resurrection. I've never seen a dead body come back to life. I've never seen someone put off their physical body and be transformed and receive an eternal body. But that's going to happen for those who are alive when Jesus comes back. That's pretty impossible to me, but it's going to happen. And I make this joke every single time. I mean, I really hope my resurrected body has hair. I miss it. You know, Grayson is so, so blessed with so much hair. It's so great. I would love to have hair again, right? I've never seen that. That's impossible to me. What about spending eternity with God? I don't know what that's going to look like. But that's a promise that he said would happen. Believers can initially be incredulous. Okay, but... Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Go back to Hebrews 11. And look at what the Hebrew writer said about Sarah. God had made this promise that just seems incredible and impossible. And initially she laughs. Initially Abraham laughed. 
Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when, when she was past the age, how, since she considered him faithful who had promised. What got her past the impossibility of it? She initially said, this is impossible, and this is ridiculous, and I've been waiting for all these years. Abraham's 100. I'm 90. This doesn't make any sense. And it says she stopped, and she considered something. Actually, she didn't consider something. She considered someone. She considered God, and she considered that the God that she knew was faithful. That the God that she knew in her past had spoken and had kept the promises that he spoke. And this is just one of those promises that hadn't been kept yet, but all the other promises had been. So she's like, this God, even though this is impossible, my God has done some pretty incredible things. He's done some pretty amazing things. Every time he says something, it comes true. In his time and in his way, God is faithful. So she stopped, and she stopped focusing on the impossibility of it, and she turns her focus to the one who's doing the speaking. Like, when you're teaching your kid, you're teaching your kid to ride their bike. We just did this with Felicity, like, a week ago. Her first two-wheel bike, she's got her training wheels on, and she's focusing on her feet. And she's, like, so rigid, and she's looking down, and will my feet do what they need to do? Focused on her feet. And we're like, look up, look up, get your head up, look out here, look at me, right? And they're so focused, you take the training wheels off. Don't let go, don't let go, don't let go, go, right? We get so focused on the difficulty of the moment, and God's saying, stop all that. Focus on me and what you know about me. What about Peter walking out of the boat? See all this crazy stuff going on. And it, it wasn't that he saw the wind, he saw the effect of the wind. He saw the waves, these huge waves that are being driven by the wind. And he stops looking at Jesus, the one who controls the wind, right? Belief, this is the way I would word that. Belie- belief takes root and grows when we consider the who, the who made the promises. The who that made the promises. We're missing a word in that statement. When we consider who made the promises. I shared this with the folks we were studying with this weekend. Um, there's, a, there's a musician that lives down around the Nashville area that had a pretty large family, both biological and adoptive kids. And when one of his biological children was in their teens and had their driver's license, he was backing out of the driveway and accidentally ran over his little sister. She was early grade school, five, maybe six. She was young. And she didn't survive. And the father, I mean, you just think about all the complicated relationships and things going on there. I mean, you're trying to help the young man not get swallowed up with grief. The mom and dad are sorry. You know, they're missing their daughter, but they don't want their son to carry the guilt of an accident. Like, it's an accident. He didn't mean to do anything. And they want to help him get back in a car and feel safe driving. Like, there are all these layers to that accident, right? And what he did is he... he He's a songwriter and an artist, so he writes songs. And so he wrote these songs about his process of grief. And one of them, I just think, helps make the point here when you consider the who. 
when you consider who made the promises. So these are the lyrics to that, to that song. I am broken, I am bleeding, I am scared, and I'm confused, but you are faithful. Yes, you are faithful. I'm weary, unbelieving. God, please help my unbelief, because you are faithful. Yes, you are faithful. I will proclaim it to the world. I will declare it in my heart and sing it when the sun is shining. I will scream it in the dark. You are faithful. You are faithful. When you give and when you take away, even then, still, your name is faithful. You are faithful. And with everything inside me, I am choosing to believe you are faithful. I am waiting for the rescue that I know is sure to come because you are God. Yes, you are faithful. I've dropped anchor in your promises and I am holding on because you are faithful. God, you are faithful. I will proclaim it to the world. I will declare it to my heart. Sing it when the sun is shining. I will scream it in the dark. You are faithful. You are faithful. When you give and when you take away, even then, still your name is faithful. You are faithful. And with everything inside me, I am choosing to believe you are faithful. Though I cannot have the answer that I'm waiting, wanting to demand, I'll remember you are God and everything is in your hand. In your hands you hold the sun, the moon, the stars up in the sky. For the sake of love, you hung your own son on the cross to die. You are faithful. Yes, you are faithful. When you give and when you take away, even then, great is your faithfulness, great is your faithfulness. What got him through all that? Answered questions? Because there are some that weren't. Changed circumstances? Nope, because they were what they were. But what got him through that was thinking about who God was. That God is God, and that God is good, and that God keeps his promises, and there's more to life than this life. And so if that's who God is, I don't need to have all the answers. I can accept the answers that I get. And that might leave me wanting more, but that's okay because God is faithful. And that's what Sarah had to do. This doesn't make sense. You intentionally waited. Like if you'd done this 25 years ago before I went through menopause, this could have happened. Why did you wait so long? Because then you wouldn't have realized it was me. Right? He intentionally makes her wait. Someone said it this way. Faith trusts that God by his power will overcome any physical obstacles that seem to stand in the way of the fulfillment of his word. That's a great statement. I mean, think about all of the examples of faith in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, where what happens is we hear what God says, and then we look at our circumstances, and we're like, that, that can't be. And these are the reasons that it can't be. Walking around Jericho, there's a big old wall. No one can get through that wall. And you're telling me to walk around and be quiet. That has nothing to do with the wall. And then on the last day, when we're done walking quietly, you want us to get really loud. That has nothing to do with the wall. But it has everything to do with God. And so they keep walking, and they keep walking, and they keep walking, and when they're done, the wall's down. Was it because they walked so well? Because they shouted so loud? Or maybe because they did what God said to do and trusted him, and God took care of it? That's the way God works. 
faith trusts that God by his power will overcome any physical obstacles that seem to stand in the way of the fulfillment of his word. They don't stand in his way. We just think they do. Right? And someone described Sarah's faith like this. Sarah's faith was a dawning realization. It was a growing conviction. It wasn't like one morning she didn't have faith and the next morning she did. Like we're talking 25 years of God talking to them and talking to them and giving more information and pushing them a little bit more and pushing them a little bit more. And the, that whole process was called faith from the beginning to the end. That's faith. We grow. We grow in our faith. Right? You are faithful. You are faithful. Let's make another point. Back in Hebrews 11, verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. Think about this for a second. God's been promising. He's been promising a child. Promising a child, promising a child. And he tells them, he gets so specific, this time next year, this time next year, there's going to be a child. How's that child going to get in there? They have to make a decision. And, and married couples that struggle with infertility can, can share in this. That the hope of children being born comes from the joy of physical intimacy but when you don't have the fulfillment of that joy like the child doesn't come and the child doesn't come and the child doesn't come it actually can rob joy from intimacy and intimacy can become a less joyful thing and then it just becomes a chore or a habit and then it's like why are we even doing this why are we even doing this they have been trying to physically have a child for a century and no kid and God's like, within 12 months, what that means is you and Abraham need to make the decision to trust me and be intimate with each other. You have to make a decision. And in faith, do what I'm calling you to do, even though from your perspective, your bodies can't do it anymore. She had to make a decision, and she had to act on that decision. She couldn't just sit in the rocker and Abraham be out on the front porch and all of a sudden she's pregnant. It wasn't going to work that way. They had to make a choice. And this is how I might word that. Belief is the decision to trust the one who made the promises and then you act on it. Sometimes that's what God is waiting for before empowering us to accomplish our part. He's waiting for us to just trust him. And when you get to this, this sentence in Genesis 21, so Genesis 21 is the year later. Genesis 21 is when Isaac is finally born, and they're laughing. Like, they're like can you believe it? There's this joyful laughter. Who would believe? Blah, 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 blah. Genesis 21, we'll, we'll skip down. No, we won't skip down. We're just going to read the whole context, starting in verse 1. 
the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which the Lord had spoken to him. I'm going to read that again and emphasize three phrases. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. The whole thing with faith is God speaks, he's faithful, so you believe him. And so it's emphasizing God spoke and he did it. God spoke and he did it. God spoke and he did it. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, not Hagar. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. There's some, there's some irony in there. Who would have said that Abraham, to Abraham, that Sarah would give him a child? God did, like 25 years ago. God did. But what she's saying there is more than that. What she's saying there is this. There's no person in her circle of friends I finally got pregnant. You got pregnant? What? Like, you can't get pregnant. You're, you're 90 years old. I know, but I'm pregnant. I never would have said. You're right. There's no one living. There's no person on this planet that would have predicted that that would have happened. But God did. Sarah didn't even initially believe it. Abraham doubted it. So God gets all the credit for it. God gets all the glory for it. It's a testimony to God that they had Isaac. And that's what she's saying in verse 7. No one here could have done that, but God did. That's what she's saying. She's actually celebrating in what God has done. Right? Someone said this. I don't have this up on a slide. Someone said men spend the greater part of their lives putting limitations on the power of God. When we're wrestling with things, we hit that moment in our life and we just can't see beyond right now. We look at that and we look at the impossibility of that. And we're like, I don't know that God can do that. I don't know that God can do that. I don't know if, if God will do that. I don't know. I don't know. Man, God just might. I don't know. We're talking about God who spoke everything into existence. I mean, we're talking about God who raises people from the dead. We're talking about God who made the sun stand still. Like all of that out there that's like a giant clockwork thing, God put his finger in the gears for a little bit because he's God. And we look at some little thing in the next week and go, I don't know if God can do that. We spend too much of our time questioning the power of God. If God said that this is the way it's going to go, then this is the way it's going to go. Let's make a, a bigger point, right? Let's make a bigger point. The Hebrew writer, when talking about Abraham and Sarah and the birth of Isaac, when the Hebrew writer's talking about that, he's trying to draw attention to something because he said Abraham's body was as good as dead, but then you got a life. 
death to life. All the way back in Genesis, you have this foreshadowing of God's bringing life out of death. He waited until their bodies were as good as dead and then created a life. God did that. Abraham and Sarah were foreshadowing resurrection. They were foreshadowing resurrection. And let's make a bigger point for just a second. Think about the places in God's word where he emphasized his ability to bring life out of death. Where he emphasized his ability for resurrection power. So just for a minute, and we don't need to read the whole thing, but you think about Ezekiel chapter 37 and the 14 verses there describing the Valley of Dry Bones. Where he takes Ezekiel in a vision to this large valley, and the whole valley floor is covered with death. Just bones separated from each other, skeletons that are not intact. And they're not fresh. They've been there so long, all of the bones are dried out. They're dry. Like there's no marrow left in those bones. There's no life in those bones. And he asks Ezekiel, you know, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like that kid that's like, I don't want to get this wrong. You know, God, I'm not going to answer. You know the answer. God's like, I can prophesy over them. I'm giving you this power of prophecy. Prophesy over them to come together. And so Ezekiel does that. And then all the bones start jittering and rattling. And that's what the kids sing in the song, you know, the rattle of the bones. All the bones come together, and then, like, from the inside out, they start covering the bones and muscle covers, and there's tendons, and then skin covers, and all of a sudden, you've just got all these husks of people standing there, and they're still not alive. And God says, do you think I can breathe life into them? God, you know. He's like, okay, prophesy, speak over them, and tell them. And then all of a sudden, there's this wind that blows through the valley, and all of those bodies take a breath. And then there's this mighty army of living people. And the point that he makes is, my nation, my nation of Israel looks dead. I've judged them. This is during the captivity. It doesn't look like Israel will ever come back as a group of people. But I can breathe life into my nation. I can resurrect my nation. I can make another Israel. And that's what he's communicating to the Israelites. I can revive you as a people, as a group. Now, this one I do want to read. Turn over to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, and we'll start reading verses 10 and 11. We just talked about God being able to bring life to a dead group. Starting in verse 10, Isaiah 55 and verse 10. Isaiah says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so God gives this really beautiful picture comparing his spoken word to the rain cycle. And, like, that rain cycle is a pretty special thing to Anna and I. Her, her parents, my in-laws, live out in Oregon, and they're ski instructors on Mount Hood. And so every year they go up, and there's a small, small glacier up on Mount Hood. So there's, like, if you really want to ski, you can all year long, but it's on ice and, like, whatever. But there's snow. There's a snow season. And people go up, 
and they ski. But the, the water cycle is there's rain and snow up on Mount Hood. And then during the spring, that, that snow melts and starts to fill the creeks. You get the rivers. It goes down. It helps water the Willamette Valley. And depending on the snow level per year, it will affect the water level that year. But when the water level is great and it hits the valley, the valley is a very lush, fertile place. You have all these farms out there. There's so much produce through the valley, right? And God says, that's my word. My word is that. It comes down and it goes through all these places and it accomplishes my purpose. Now, read verses 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Like mountains, hills, valleys, everything is celebrating God and what his word does. Verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. He gets to verse 13. And I think we missed the point here. We're like, oh, well, God is digging up and getting this old stuff out and planting new stuff. And because God swaps stuff out, he's got a great name for himself. Like it speaks to God's greatness that he can uproot old things and put in new things. That's not the picture. The picture is God's word is like water and water is transforming something ugly and nasty into something beautiful and productive. Like if I could come up with some kind of miracle water and sell it at Lowe's, I'd be a billionaire. Like just get this water and sprinkle it over your field and all of a sudden all the nasty stuff is gone and you've got great stuff. There's no water on earth that can do that. But God's water, God's word can do that. God's word can transform hard hearts into soft hearts. If anything can do it, God's word can do it. God can transform people if they allow his word to work and they respond to his word with faith. He can transform people that are living hard lives and ugly lives and bitter lives and broken lives and make them whole and fruitful. Think about Paul. How else do you explain Paul? This guy with a hard heart and he's kicking against the goads and he's rejecting Jesus and he's killing disciples. And then all of a sudden he encounters Jesus and he realizes he was so wrong. And then he flips and he goes around and spends the rest of his life, even though it's really hard on him and hard on his body and he's persecuted, goes around trying to help people become Christians. How do you explain that? Jesus spoke to him. He heard the word of Jesus. Jesus and responded to the gospel of Jesus. So on a national level, can God, can God resurrect a group? Yes. Can he resurrect a, a church? Yes. Can he resurrect an individual? Yes. When they respond to his word. When they hear what that God has to say, and they hear what Jesus has to say, and they put their faith in what he has to say, and they respond to it, then just like God did something incredible and blessed two elderly people whose bodies were as good as dead and blessed them with life and a son, then he can do that with us. But it takes faith. And then God gets all the glory for that. So faith believes the incredible. If you've not yet 
put your faith in God, I hope by the end of this week, you'll realize he's worth putting your faith in. That he is the only perfect one that will never let you down. He keeps his promises. And what that also means is putting your faith in his son whom he sent to die for you. And responding to his son in faith. Believing that he died for you. Believing that he's inviting you. Believing that his death can be applied to you in baptism. And let me tell you, there is nothing to brag about in baptism. Baptism is all faith. Like, I have never seen anyone come up out of the waters of baptism and, like, spike in a football. They're like, whoo, I did that so good. Like, there is nothing to boast about in baptism. Your, your heart is actively engaged, but your body is passive. You are sitting there. You are... You are mimicking with your body your spiritual condition. It's dead. Somebody else lowers your body into the water because you're dead. Somebody else is raising you up out of the water. You're not doing it. Somebody else is doing it. And when you're in that water, you're just laying there. But God, through the Spirit, is the one washing you. God is the one who's applying the atoning blood of Jesus to you. You're not doing that. There's nothing to boast about in baptism. It's humble submission and faith all the way through from start to finish. You know, when people are like, well, I'm confident that I'm saved because I was baptized right. Look, I agree. I think there's a, there's a specific way to be baptized and to be converted. But that's nothing to boast about because God does all the work. Right? If you haven't been baptized into Christ yet, that's something to do, and you do it with faith. Or maybe you're already a disciple. You're already a disciple. You're already a Christian but you realize you've been putting too much stock on what you've been doing and you haven't been trusting God the way you need to trust God. Maybe you're in that season, that day or that week or whatever, where you're just kind of incredulous. You're like, God can't do that. Then maybe this is the week that's going to move you off of that. And you're like, but God can, and I just need to trust him. And I just need to get busy doing what he wants me to do. If you're struggling with that and you want prayers and encouragement, we'd like to offer that this morning. If you'd like to become a Christian this morning, you can be. Whatever your spiritual need is, please come to the front while we stand and while we sing.